Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Good morning, church. I just want to welcome everyone who are here today and those of you who have joined online. Welcome to church family. We are on a tour, uh, the Colossians. Hope you are enjoying your journey so far and trust you have been taking snapshots with your theological cameras. Trust you are keeping up your journals. And as you spot some remarkable impressions and mind-provoking and convicting thoughts and concept. Well, here we are, church. We are on the fifth day of our tour. And today we'll be looking at six verses, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. So I'm going to encourage every one of you to open your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 15 onwards. But let me first remind ourselves of the context so we understand that. So the time is about A.D. 62, and Paul is in prison in Rome. Epaphras, a convert, through the teachings of Paul, he was the founder of the little church in Colossae. And this little insignificant church, we learn that uh, it came up against a serious uh, heretic, uh, heretical attack. The exact nature of the false teaching is not known, but we do know one thing, that the Colossian heresy stems from three elements. It's, it's false Greek philosophy and Judaistic legalism and ceremonialism. It's very important for us to understand, church, that the core issue is the denial of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. So naturally, Paul's defense is on the sufficiency in Christ. And that becomes a central theme of Colossians. So Epaphras makes his 1,000 plus miles journey all the way to Rome, and he talks to Paul, and Paul writes this epistle and gives it through a beloved brother. He calls him Tychicus. And he brings his letter and gives it to the saints in Colossae. And in this letter, as Paul begins, the first two verses in chapter 1 is he is greeting the saints in Colossae. And chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, was giving thanks for their life, for the life of the saints, for their faith, for their love for each other, and for their hope. And in verses 9 to 12, he writes his specific prayer for their growth in the knowledge of God's will. And we looked at this, the, the growth markers, Paul writes in verses 9 to 12. And last week, Pastor Keith was expounding from verses 13 to 14. Church, I want you to pay close attention to this summary because today's study stems from these thoughts. In verse 12, Paul is thanking the Father who qualified the believers to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. In verse 13, he is reminding the believers that the Father has delivered them from the power of darkness and conveyed them into the kingdom 
of the son of his love. And in verse 14, Paul says that it is in this son that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 15 onwards, what you are going to look at today, Paul writes his most profound and powerful description of his son, the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul refutes the heretical views of Christ as he expounds Christology in much detail. And church, listen, in our tour de Colossians, we have arrived at a crucial but impressive site. I want every one of you to take your eyes off any distraction, take enough snapshots using your theological cameras, pay attention to the narrative very carefully, and write down your own journals because today is more teaching than preaching. Talking of the supremacy of Christ. Paul addresses in two parts. In verses 15 to 17, which you're going to look at, Paul shows that Christ is preeminent or Christ is supreme over his natural creation, the universe. Let's look at the words now. I'm going to read this, just follow along. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Then in verses 18 to 20, Paul extols that Christ is preeminent or supreme over his spiritual creation. So first he looked at the natural creation, and now we look at the spiritual creation, the church. Listen to this. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body. Body of what? What is it? It is the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Church, as we begin this study, let me make a bold statement here. Every believer, every one of us, who are listening to this message, we should have a clear understanding of who this Christ is. The doctrine of Christology is vital for you and for me. Because we live in a polytheistic society, we are bombarded with various schools of thoughts, which the modern philosophy injects in our minds continuously and causes us to doubt, to question, the true understanding and identity of our God is essential for our life. Church, knowing God and knowing Christ will help us enter into an eternal relationship with our God. It will help us to see our shortfalls. It will help us in our spiritual growth. It will help us in our spiritual worship. And ultimately, it will help us 
in our way to eternal life with him. That is why this study is very vital for us. I want us to understand that even though that Paul does a lot of apologetics work, theology is not an interesting philosophic topic for Paul to debate. This is not for head knowledge that Paul is writing. Paul is writing this for heart transformation. Theology, a proper understanding of who our God is, should lead every one of us to worship. So theology is the understanding of who our God is. So my, my prayer is that every one of us, as a result of learning more about God, that we'll have a heart of worship. This is what A.W. Tozer said. When you think rightly about God, you are molded into the sort of person that God wants you to become. If you don't view as the, view the Lord as the absolute and sovereign Lord of the universe, we'll be declined to disobey and disregard Him to our ultimate ruin. This is what Martin Luther said. Please pay attention to this. If anyone stands firm and right on this point, that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, who died and rose again for us, all other articles of the Christian faith, Martin Luther says, will fall in place for him and firmly sustain him. And he goes on to say this, the problem of all errors, heresies, idolatries, offenses, abuses, and ungodliness in the church have originally arisen because, Luther says, this article of the Christian faith concerning Jesus Christ has been despised or lost. Church, my prayer is that as we journey through this little book of Colossians, the Spirit will teach every one of us about our God in and through His only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is all-sufficient and supreme and sovereign. So with this introduction, let's dive into the passage today. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Let me read that again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Church, one of the most important early church controversies over the person of Christ centered on these verses. Arius, the early church heretic, used this very verse that Paul wrote in verse 15, the firstborn of all creation, to argue that Jesus was the highest created being not equal with God. Let me repeat that. Arius, the early church heretic, he used this very verse, verse 15, the firstborn of all creation, to argue that Jesus was the highest created being, but not equal to God. What happens today? The modern followers of Arius, who are they? They are the JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses. They do the same. Church is ironic that the enemy would take the very passage Paul wrote, to extol the preeminence of Christ and use it to pull him down. 
False teachers wanted to smudge the person and work of Jesus Christ. They may have been teaching that Jesus is not fully God, but rather the highest of a series of emanation between God and man, meaning something that was sent from God. They thought that he wasn't sufficient and supreme for Christian life. So here we are seeing Paul giving one of the greatest Christological texts in the New Testament. And he compellingly shows two things here in this text that we have picked up for today. There are two things Paul is showing. In verses 15 to 17, Paul is saying Christ is supreme or preeminent over his natural creation, the universe. And verses 18 to 20, Paul says, Christ is supreme or preeminent over his spiritual creation, the church. So let us break it down now. Verses 15. Paul starts by saying, he is the image of the invisible God. So the first statement Paul makes is, Christ is preeminent or supreme over the universe. Why? Because he is the image of the invisible God. So Paul means that Jesus Christ makes the unseen God visible. That's what Paul is saying here. So the Greek word for this is, was used also of the image of Caesar on a coin. Now, let me bring it up on the screen for you. The average person could not see Caesar. But by looking at the coin, they could see what he looked like. Because not everybody had access to Caesar. They could not see him. But they were able to see it from that coin. Church, I want you to note that there aren't any image of God cast on a coin for us to take around and show. But when you know the person of the Lord Jesus Christ... Understand the context and the scriptures that will reveal the unseen God. We know that no one has seen God. Why? Because God is spirit. That's what the Bible says. He is not visible to the human eye. The question is then, how does God reveal himself to us? So Paul gives the answer in these epistles. He says that in him, in Christ, the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. So Jesus himself told his disciples, he, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The Hebrew writer says of, this, of Christ about this, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So this means that there is no other way to know God than through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way, Jesus Christ. So the first point that Paul is making in his, in his defense to these heretical views is Christ alone is preeminent. He is supreme over all universe. Why? Because he alone is the image of the invisible God. Now, having said that, that Christ alone is the image of the invisible God, in the, in the, in the very same verse, Paul says he is the firstborn over all creation. So Paul now goes on to say, secondly, 
as you look at this, and we're going to learn that soon, Christ is preeminent, He is supreme over the universe because He created the universe and He sustains it. Because He created the universe and He sustains it. Let me explain this to you. Now, as I said, Arius and Jehovah's Witnesses interpret this. Jesus is the first of all created beings. That's how they interpret this. Jesus is the first of all created beings. In other words, in Arius would say, there was a time when he was not. Church, we should first understand the term firstborn in the context of the hearers of this letter. I told you this on day one, as we read this letter, as we study this letter, we should place ourselves in, in the position of the recipients of this letter, go back in time 2,000 years and to receive the letter, and we must read it the same way that the recipients would have read this letter. How did the saints in Colossae understand the term firstborn? Now, the firstborn in the Old Testament referred to the heir or the ruler over his brethren. The firstborn in Greek, the understanding is that it signifies priority. That's what it means. In the culture of the ancient Near East, the firstborn was not necessarily the oldest child. So church, in the widest, wider context, it shows that the firstborn cannot mean the first creature or the first child born. The firstborn referred not to the birth order, but it refers to being first in rank. The firstborn possessed the inheritance and leadership. The firstborn was preeminent over his brothers and sisters. Throughout the scriptures, at least six times, the Lord is declared to be the firstborn of God. These passages declare that the pre-existence and the sovereignty and the redemption that Christ offers. So, in this passage, having mentioned Christ as the firstborn, meaning the one who is supreme over creation, Paul immediately explains what he means by the term in the following verses. Look at, the, look at verses 16, please. This is what Paul writes. Listen to this, church. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So having said the firstborn of all creation, now Paul goes on to explain what that really means. Let us examine this passage. The first thing Paul says is, by him. Actually, when you go and study the Greek word of that, it means, I don't want to pronounce the Greek word here, it simply means in him. That Christ is the sphere in whom all things were created. That's what it means. So God's creation takes place in Christ and not apart from him. Then secondly, you see in this passage, is all things were created through him. It means that he is the agent of creation. Christ is the agent of creation. 
And lastly, we see in this passage that it's for him. It was created for him. It points to Christ as the supreme reason all things were created, namely for his pleasure and glory. But here's the interesting part, church. I want you to see how the heretics twist the word. If you, if you go to the Jehovah Witnesses uh, translation, the New World translation, the same passage is written this way. Let me show it to you on the screen. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then he said, because by means of him, all other things were created in the heavens and on earth, the things visible and the things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments and authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. They insert the word other before all things. At both the beginning and end of the verse, as you can see it here, and in few other places in verses 17 and verses 20 and so on, even though it is not in any Greek manuscripts. Here's their view. Listen carefully, church. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus was the only one directly created by God himself. Jehovah Witnesses would say, why? Because Jesus is called what? The only begotten son. Then they say that the son shares the creative works of God. So for them it makes sense when you read, because by means of him, all things, because Christ was the firstborn, he was the first begotten son, and because all other things were created in the heavens and upon earth and things visible and the things invisible. They inserted that word because they say Jesus was the firstborn, not created. Jesus was the agent and instrumentality through whom Jehovah the Creator worked and created all other things. Church, what a subtle change this is on the divinity of Christ. It's just a drop of poison that you can hardly detect. It's confusing and can be convicting for those who do not have a clear understanding of the doctrine of Christology. But Paul addresses bang on here. He did not mince his words. By also saying that Christ is the firstborn of all creation, Paul is telling the Colossians heretics who advocated angel worship. I told you that was one of the problems in the church in Colossae. He was telling them, listen, you people in Colossae, Christ created all the invisible powers. It means that it is Christ who created the angels. So in other words, Paul is telling them, you should worship the creator of angels and not the angels he created. So in the immediate context, Paul means that Jesus has absolute priority over all creation because he existed before it. He simply states this plainly at the beginning of verse 17. Look at this. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Church, you know the scripture validates scripture. As I was preparing this message, I just could not help but going to the Gospel of John. 
John speaks beautifully of the preeminence of God over creation in John chapter 1, verse 3. But I'm going to bring this, the first three verses here. Listen to what Apostle John was saying here in the Gospel of according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Very interesting passage. So John is saying here, in the beginning was the Word, so meaning in the beginning was the Word and is the Word and will be the Word, and we know what the Word is. In verse 14 he talks about, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So basically he's saying he is eternally God, he was pre-existing. And then he said, and the Word was with God, and he was in the beginning with God. He was saying about it is a face-to-face and equal relationship, meaning that they, Christ is equal with God, and then he said, and the word was God. So word, not only and co-eternal and co-equal, the word is God. He's essentially God. And after saying that, now for the curious mind, do it when you go home. You know what JW, the Jehovah Witnesses did to this scripture? They looked, took the verse number one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And they said the word was a God. With a small g. John's gospel said the word was God with a capital G. J.R. Witnesses say the word was a God. See how the heretics inject a word to take away the true meaning of the text, questioning the Trinity here. So having spoken about the person of Christ, now John is writing about the creation, the power of his creation. Look at this. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. What is John saying here in verse number 3, church? He's saying Jesus is the master of creation. He's saying that anything in the category of made, anything, Christ made it. It means that Christ was not made, he was the creator. That is exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 17. Look at that. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. In essence, Paul's, Jesus, Paul says that Jesus is the power that holds it together. Consist simply means it holds it together, the glue of the galaxies. Church, in summary, Paul says Jesus is supreme over not only the kings who have reigned, uh, who have ever reigned, he, but he is supreme over all creation because he created it. Not only Jesus created it, that everything that exists, he is holding it together. It means that if Jesus decided to let go of his hand, the entire universe would disintegrate. Without him, the electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would, not, would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. Jesus holds everything together in place. That is why we can be comforted. In promises that we see in the book of Isaiah, see, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He's holding us in the palm of his hand. Psalm is right, my soul uh, follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. 
If Christ let go his hand, we are doomed. Jesus holds everything together in place. He is supreme. He is preeminent over his creation. So now having established that in verses 15 to 17, Christ is supreme and preeminent over his natural creation universe, now Paul goes on in verses 18 to 20, he talks about you know, the supremacy of God over his spiritual creation, the church. So under, the pre Christ, Christ, uh, under that, Christ is preeminent over his spiritual creation, the church, Paul makes three observations in between verses 18 and 20. In, the, in eight, verse 18, he says, he is preeminent as the head of the church. Let me tell you what I'm going to tell you, preach today, in these, in these three verses. He's saying that Christ is preeminent as the head of the church. He is saying that Christ is preeminent as the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. And he's saying that he is the only means of reconciliation of all things to God in verses 19 to 20. So let's look at verse number 18 here. And as the head of the body, what is that body? The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So what we are seeing here, Christ is preeminent over his spiritual body because he is the head of the body, the church. I want you to, if you recall church, the encounter Apostle Paul had on the road to Damascus, when he encountered the risen Savior, what did Jesus say to him? What was the voice that we heard? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you remember that? Saul really, but who, what was Paul persecuting? Was it Jesus or the church? Saul thought he was persecuting the church, but here we see Jesus was saying, why do you persecute me? What do you take from this church? If you are persecuting the body, the church, you are indeed persecuting its head, Jesus Christ, because Christ is the head of the church. So to combat the Colossian heresy, Paul asserts that Christ is the head of his body. The church to set forth his supreme authority over that, because he is the head. Even in the epistles to the Ephesians, Paul writes, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. The members of the body must submit to the head as sovereign. Church, this analogy has many other ramifications, of course, for every one of us. Just as the head and the body are inseparably joined, we are united with Christ. So our identity, our responsibility, our identity must always be found in Him and Him alone. Just as the body has many members with different functions, yet in one body, also the body of Christ, we must be united with each other and we must love each other. I don't just favor my hand over my leg. I love my body. We ought to love that. Just as the body is dead if separated from the head. 
the body of Christ must draw its life from Christ as it depends on Him. That's why our church must be Christocentric in every way. That's why our lives must be Christocentric in every way. Because Christ is the head of the church. So having established that Christ is supreme as the head of his body, the church, now in the second part of it, Paul goes on to say this. As he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Christ as the beginning means he originated the church. It was his idea. He is the one who originated. It was not a brilliant idea of the apostles. Church was the creation of Christ himself. Now when Paul refers to the firstborn from the dead, it points to Christ's resurrection. And we have a whole passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ had not resurrected. Our hope is in vain. Our faith is in vain. So as we look at this here, when Paul is referring to the firstborn from the, from the dead, he is pointing to his resurrection as the first of its kind, supreme over all other resurrection. Let me explain this to you. As you go through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, of course you see there are many who, who are brought back to life. We see some examples I just quickly looked at, and, and in the Old Testament, we see the widow's son in Zarephath, and the Shunammite woman's son was brought back to life. In the New Testament, we have Jairus and Lazarus, and, and there was a young man at Nain, and, and, and Tabitha, or Dorcas, and, and, and Eutychus, and there are a few others. But church, they, they are not resurrection in the true sense. They are resuscitation, because all these people that we see eventually had a physical death. They are not living anymore. So how is that different from Christ's resurrection? Jesus alone has been raised with an indestructible, resurrected body. That is the type of bodies that you and I, we all will receive at His second coming. That is why His resurrection is different, is supreme. That is what it means He is the firstborn from the dead. Because of him being the firstborn from the dead, our new bodies, yours and mine, will also not be subject to disease, aging, or death. So, so far Paul looked at two things here. As a, as a, as a, as a spiritual creation, the church, he said Christ is supreme as the head of his body, the church. Christ is supreme as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And thirdly, in verses 19 to 20, Paul is talking about Christ is supreme as he is the only means of reconciling all things to God. He's the only one who can reconcile. Look at verses 19 to 20. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, that by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his, of his cross. So Paul first explains the scope of the reconciliation. Look at this very carefully, church. 
He says, Christ reconciling, reconciliation includes both things on earth and in heaven. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. We all know very well that because of sin, the creation was subjected to curse and to futility. So here Paul is referring to the new heavens and the new earth, which will be restored to glory that the first creation had before the fall of Satan and the demons and the fall of man. So Paul is explaining here how this reconciliation process is going to take place and he's saying Christ is the only one who is qualified to do that. He's talking about this supremacy here. First he says, Paul explains, Christ is the only one qualified to reconcile all things to himself. That's what he means by this verse here that, bear with me, when he says, for it is pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. He says, the Christ is the only one who is qualified to reconcile all things to himself because the fullness of deity dwells in him. The term conveyed the idea of the totality of the divine power and attributes. That's what this, this, this statement means. The heretics claim that the fullness to Colossians and Epaphras' message that lacked there. The fullness was not there. You need to add more things to it. But Christ says no. Paul says no. Paul counters by saying that you can't get any fuller than Christ because all the fullness of God dwells in him. And later on we'll study in chapter 2, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In verse number 9 he says. So Paul says that, that Christ is the only one qualified to, recon to be reconciled because the fullness of deity dwells in him. And the second thing he says in this same verse as you look at this, he is qualified to reconcile because it is he who made through the blood of his cross. If not for the cross of Calvary, if not for the blood that was shed, church, you and I have no means of being reconciled to Christ. We have no means of establishing the relationship with God. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, triumphing over them. He made peace with those who came to him through the cross. That is why you and I have this joyful assurance of eternal life. So that is what Paul is saying here. Only Christ and Christ alone could make it possible. Christ's victory on the cross was the decisive turning point of history. It guarantees that Satan and his forces are de defeated. So church, when Christ returns in his final victory over Satan and all sinners, he will restore both the earth and the heavens to their original glory. So what do we learn in these six verses? We learn two things here. Christ is supreme over his natural creation, verses 15 to 17. What is his natural creation? It is the universe. Christ is supreme over his spiritual creation. What is his spiritual creation? It's the church. And under the, the, the natural creation, the universe, why is Christ supreme? Because he is the invisible God. 
Why is Christ supreme? Because he created it and he sustains it. That's what Paul says. Then we looked at Christ is supreme over his spiritual creation, the church. Why is he supreme? Because he is the head of the body, the church. That's what he says in verse 18. And then why is, why is he supreme? Because he is the beginning. He is the one who originated the church and he is the firstborn from the dead. And not only that, Paul concludes by saying as the only means, here Christ is the only means of reconciling all things, both earth and heaven. Reconciling us with God. Why? Because the fullness of deity dwelled in him. And how did he make it possible? He made peace through his blood. So in conclusion, church, Paul wants every Christian and every person to know that Christ Jesus is preeminent. He is supreme. He is supreme over his natural creation, the universe. He is supreme over his spiritual creation, the church. So what is the life application that we can take from this? It's found in verse number 18, second part of it. That in all things, he may have the preeminence. In all things, in my life and in your life. That he himself will come to have the first place in everything that we do. So in light of what we have heard, church, Paul is establishing very clearly and refuting the, the heretical views and establishing that the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, and talking about his preeminence over the natural creation, the whole universe, and his spiritual creation, the church. Now Paul is coming downing, down and asking every one of us today, who reigns in your life? Can we truly say that he has the preeminence in my life? So let me leave you some questions for you, for you to think through this. Does he have the first place in your life? Does he have the first place over your thought life? Does he have first place over your words? Does he have first place over how you use your time? Does he have first place over your finances? Does he have first place over your entertainment choices? Does he have first place in everything in your life? I just want to leave that thought with you, church. Examine yourselves and see what's priority for you. Is Christ supreme in your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for your servant, Apostle Paul, and we thank you, Master, for the way that you have spoken to us today. Spoken to us about the supremacy of Christ over, the over his natural creation, the whole universe, and over his spiritual creation, the church. And we are part of the body of, the body of Christ. And I pray in Jesus' name, as it has been very clearly articulated to us that you supremely reign, that you are supreme over your creation. 
that we will apply to our own lives. And as Paul has exhorted in his passage here, that we too can truly echo with what he says, that in all things, Christ may have the preeminence in our lives. So help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Church, please join the worship team as they lead us in a time of worship. The final song, once again. Let's do it in an attitude of prayer.